0: continuing a series called majoring in the minors and we're coming up to one if not the hardest of these prophets this writing to explore together Uh, but we don't want to avoid it and so this might be a difficult passage or a difficult book to study but God has something to say to us as I'm studying I was uh, brought to this uh, observation that Dr. Tim Keller makes uh, about this concept of love both love that we give and love that we desire to receive. And he makes a pretty profound observation that that has really shaped my understanding of love and grace in, in many ways these last few years. Here's his observation. He says, I submit to you that one of the great riddles of human existence and the riddles of our condition is why we absolutely must have a love from others that they cannot give us. And others must have a love from you that you cannot give them. So what he's saying is, we have this desire for love that we look for in relationships, which isn't a bad thing. But we look to be fulfilled by those relationships, whether it's parenting or romantic or friendship. And our capacity, our need for love, they're incapable of fulfilling. Likewise, we have other people in our lives that desire to be loved by us more than we're capable of actually giving to them. And maybe you've experienced this. My wife Sarah and I have four children. Our our oldest, Caleb, is 10, Abigail, our daughter, is 8, Luke is 6, and Noah is 1. And I've learned with each of my children as a parent that they want more love than I'm able to give to them. That even on my best day, when I think I'm hitting it out of the park as a dad, I look over and they're still expecting more. They want more and more love from me. I'm one for four when it comes to them being uh, daddy's daddy's boy or daddy's girl as an infant and the one happens to be the current infant (laughs) and i'm totally cool with it i'm gonna milk that thing as long as i can right noah loves to be around me Uh, he will sleep on me instantly when he's having a bad day he just you blame on my chest he's out when he's having a bad night we bring him into bed and and uh sarah will try to hold him and he's not having he'll crawl off of her and get to me and instantly fall asleep and then when i can't take it anymore because my back is cramping, and I want to lay him next to me. He crawls right back on. He won't have it any other way. Now, as much as I love it, I am realizing there are limits to my physical ability to give him that love. My oldest, Caleb, a few months ago, had a basketball tournament, and he loves basketball. He loves playing, and he really enjoys when I'm there to watch. Well, at the time, I was at the International Conference on Missions, ICOM, something our church supports. It's a gathering of missionaries from all over the world, And I I was asked to be a part of a workshop there. And so I thought, man, what a great honor. And over a year in advance, they'd planned this. And so I went to Peoria, Illinois. So I'm over there, and we realized that the time of my last workshop that I got to be a part of was going to start at the same time as my son's basketball game, and he was really bummed. So I thought, all right, well, let me see what I can do. I'm there, didn't tell anybody, and I just had somebody cover the workshop for me that I got to know while I was there. And I snuck out, and I was going to surprise him and be there when he wasn't expecting it. Well, traffic and other things held me up, and I was able to get there just a few minutes before the end of the first half of the game. So I was able to watch the whole second half of the game. He had one of the best games that he had all season. It was really good. We celebrated, it was a good surprise. Well, this past week, we were talking about that. And I said, hey, buddy, you know, I don't miss any games that I don't absolutely have to. Like, I was in India once. There was no surprising him coming home early. (laughs) But I was like, hey, I, I try not to miss any of your games. I said, don't you remember, and I took a little bit of pride, like when I surprised you and I gave up that workshop and I came home and wasn't that awesome, and his response, yeah, but you didn't get there till (laughs) halftime. Like, what are you, what? Like, how hard do I have to try for this to mean something to you? I've just learned that no matter how much I give, they're always ready to receive more love. You see, my kids, your kids, myself and you alike, we all need that love fulfilled from something greater than us so we were designed to only be fulfilled by that love by one source c.s lewis makes this observation about the love of god he says this the love that created the world is the furnace in which you were forged it was the consuming fire the eternal and infinite fire of the love of god The Bible says that's where you were created and therefore because you were created in that kind of fire, there is no other kind of love that can warm your heart. There's no other kind of love that can melt and keep you soft. I submit that the love of God is the very thing that you need. It's the fireplace that you have to camp near or you're lost. His infinite, eternal love is the only thing that you can have that you need. Otherwise, you're shivering in the cold. I don't think there's a book in the Bible that illustrates this more than the book of Hosea. This is going to be a pretty in-your-face type of calling to ministry that Hosea experiences. And so I'm going to do something I did in the other two services. I want to offer it to you as well. It's more of a soapbox. You can completely discard what I'm about to say if you don't like it, and then clue back in and really like everything else. Uh, (laughs) uh, There's something beautiful about hearing pages turn. There just is. And so when I, like, go ahead and open your Bible. You can turn your Bibles on too. I'm all for it. I'm big into technology. I love it. Now you're going to hesitate. Like, get out the phone. There's just something beautiful when everybody opens their Bible, and my hope for you is that you would become so enamored with the Word of God that you would love flipping through it. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Hosea. If you don't, grab the one in the seat that's in front of you, under the seat in front of you. That's our gift to you. Keep it. Or go ahead and just turn your Bible on. You're like, dude, you caught me off guard. That's not fair. I get it. Uh, You can turn your Bible on. As you're getting to Hosea and finding that in your Bible, let me give you a little bit of background. We talked about last week with the book of Amos that God's people, the the kingdom of Israel, had really divided into two different kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom that was called Israel, and the southern kingdom that was called Judah. These two kingdoms were completely separated. The northern kingdom was led by a king named King Jeroboam II, and he led through a really great season of prosperity. It was this really great season in the life of the northern kingdom. Well, uh, They were still living immoral, worshiping false gods. And so God sends a series of prophets to say, hey, get it together or there's destruction coming. And they weren't hearing it. So God calls Hosea between the year of 750 to 725 B.C. And he calls Hosea to come and he says, Hosea, your call to ministry is going to be different. You're going to be a prophet. And if you remember, we said prophets, not future tellers, fortune tellers. They simply brought a message from God to the people hoping to change their lives right there in that moment. And so that's what he's called to do. He says, you're going to preach a message from me to the people, but you're also going to live it. And your life is going to reflect the message that you're preaching in such a profound way that people will not only hear it, but they will see what it is that I'm calling them to, what it is that I want to communicate to them. Another interesting thing about Hosea is his name itself. And the Hebrew language, which is what it was written in, it's very closely related to the name of Joshua. And so if you remember in your Old Testament, Joshua is the one that when the Israelites were freed from Egypt, actually led the people into the promised land after Moses died. And so you have Hosea and Joshua, very similar names in that language. And Joshua was the one that delivered them into the promised land. Well, Joshua points, even in language, to another name, one who would lead us into the promised land and deliver us from captivity. It's Jesus. Joshua can be translated Jesus. And Jesus, the one who saves, is the same meaning as Hosea. God saves. And so that's the message we're about to hear as we study this prophet. Uh, it's going to be tough and difficult because it's such a unique call to ministry, but let's let God speak for God. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, We have continually from this stage told you that one of the principles in understanding the Bible is if it's repeated, it's important, and you cannot apply that principle when you want to and ignore it when you don't. There's a word here that is repeated three different times that catches your attention. God's people had pledged their allegiance to other gods, even though they had been delivered. And this word is shocking because this is the most unique call to ministry that I've ever encountered. He comes and says, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And then I want you to have children with the prostitute because it's going to point to the fact that the people have prostituted themselves out to other gods. Now, when I graduated from seminary, all my friends got called into a variety of different ministries. No one got that call. No one. It's such a unique, in-your-face thing, and it shocks you because it brings to light a, a few different things. There's two things I want you to keep in mind as we study the life of Hosea. The first is the, the concept of adultery. And when I say adultery, it shocks the nerves. It's it's a word that stands out, because most of us in the room have known somebody affected by this, or have experienced it even in our own lives. The idea of adultery, that you would pledge to somebody else what was intended for someone else, is shocking to the system, because most of us understand the pain that's associated with it. It's painful, and it's difficult, and it hurts, and it's a heavy weight to carry for anybody. See, spiritual adultery is God's number one illustration for sin in the Bible, Repeated over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, in chapter five, God will actually pinpoint the problem with Israel in, in the book of Hosea, and He says that their problem is that they were pursuing other nations for the help that they should have been pursuing God for. Right now, we understand this is such a big problem because it's a betrayal of love, and it hurts. It's it's putting your trust in someone. It's giving to someone else what was intended to be given to your spouse and your spouse alone. And so in chapter 5, God calls this out, and he says this was their problem. When they were in a valley, when Israel was going through a really bad season, when Israel was experiencing difficulty or frustration, instead of turning to God, they ran to these other nations. They ran to Egypt, and they ran to Assyria, and they said, look, we're financially strapped, we need your help, we need your help, we need your help. And they were constantly running to others to get the help that God wanted them to run to him for, and they were continually pursuing these other gods. You might think to yourself, well, Rob, what's the big deal They're in trouble. They pursue these other places to get the help that they needed. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that they began to pledge their heart. The thing they cared about the most began to become something other than God. They began to love these other places and participate in their worship, particularly the worship to a false god named Baal, the god of fertility. And they they would pledge their allegiance to Baal and worship Baal. And so that leads to our second term. In addition to adultery, we have to understand idolatry. And they're closely related but slightly different. Idolatry is when you put your trust and hope in something other than God. So anytime that you elevate something over and above God. And here's how you can come to understand that. Every human being that you'll ever meet in life, any person that's alive is a religious person. They all are. Every human being on the planet is religious. Now, they may not practice their religion The way that we do. They may not meet and gather together and sing songs and hear uh, from a religious book. They may not even read and study a religious text or apply it or be obedient to it. But they all worship something. They all worship something. And the way to figure that out is to spend time with them. Watch how someone spends their time and listen to what someone talks about over and above everything else that they talk about consistently. And it's easy to figure out what it is that they're worshiping with their life. For many people, it's financial security, it's business success, political power, academics, material comforts, sexual pleasure. I mean, these are just a few of the things that we give ourselves to. You just watch how they spend their time. And one way to check your own heart to see, is my heart becoming idolatrous? Am I giving myself to something else and therefore committing spiritual adultery against the God that I proclaim to love? Is to ask yourself these two simple questions. The first one is this, what is it that you daydream about? What is it that you daydream about? I mean, what consumes your thoughts throughout the day? I mean, is it that new house? Like, man, if we could just get our house fixed up and you're constantly looking on Zillow and these other sites and we just get that new home, everything will be really good. Is it the promotion at work that you've been working really hard for, but you kind of see them leaning towards this coworker that you're not sure deserves it? And so you're daydreaming about getting this promotion or financial success or a degree. Is it your 401k and your ability to be financially stable as you get older? Is it your job? Is it this deep love and appreciation that you have for the job that you're doing with your life, but you're so consumed with it that it's all you ever think about? Well, the reverse of this also reveals. So as you answer this question, it's gonna reveal where your heart is either headed or where it's already arrived. The second question is kind of the reverse of the daydreaming is what, what gives you nightmares? I mean, what keeps you up at night? What gives you anxiety? What causes stress in your life? What is it that is fear creating fear in your life? What are you scared of? What are you consumed by? Because the answer to that question will give you, in some way, an indication as to where your heart is headed or where your heart has already arrived. This is what was going on in the life of God's people when Hosea was called into ministry. They were consistently giving themselves to all of these other things consistently giving into these things, and God says, hey, I want you to go, and I want your life to represent the solution to this problem. And so verse 3 tells us this. He went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. The rest of chapter 1 describes all the children that she ends up having, but I don't want you to miss this. He obeyed God. He went and took her, and he loved her. Like immediately you can tell he deeply cared for her, even though her name was Gomer. And now I really was tempted not to go there because I thought someone's going to have a Gomer in their family and I'm going to hear about it. So my email address is ryan at newhopecc.net. Okay? Uh, so she goes, he marries her and he cares about her and he loves her and he pulls her out of this life where she had to prostitute herself to pay the bills. He cares about her. Here's a way to think about it. He did for her what she clearly was unable to do for herself. He gave her stability. He gave her a good home. He gave her everything that she would have wanted. He gave her the ability to avoid living the lifestyle that had consumed her for so long. He loved her, but she got tempted. And as that temptation set in, she began to get confused. And she started playing with idolatry, and ultimately it led to adultery. And she was looking for satisfaction in the areas that weren't her husband. And Hosea describes this down in chapter 2, verse 5. If you flip over to chapter 2, verse 5, he says this, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So he pleads with her. Like he goes on to plead with her. He says, please just come back. I love you and I care about you. Don't you understand? I want to provide for you. I want to have a family with you. I want to live the rest of my life with you. I love you deeply. Why are you cheating on me? And she goes and she lives with another person. But he loves her so much, he's not going to stop. And so he begins to provide for her, even though she's living with another person. Jump down to verse 8 in chapter 2. So she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the very thing she was looking for, the wine, the oil. I lavished her with silver and gold. And they, this new couple, that she's cheating and form, cheating on me to form this new couple. They're using it to worship Baal. So he goes out of his way, even when she's completely forgot about him, to provide for him. I want you to picture this for a minute. Like This kind of love doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't compute with us. He, he loved her so much that when he finds out that she's cheated on him and he's gone, she's gone to live with another man, he decides, I know this guy's not taking care of her. He's just using her. It's going to leave her unsatisfied. This capacity for love that she has, he doesn't have what it takes to fulfill it. So picture this. He shows up one day and he knocks on the door. This guy opens the door and he says, hey, are you the one that has Gomer living here? And he says, yeah, I am. And now if I'm writing the script to a movie, that's the scene where he takes just a tiny step back and lands a haymaker that wipes this dude out, knocks his head off. He grabs her and rescues her, but that's not what happened. That's not what happens. He opens the door and says, are you the one that has her? Yeah. Well, here's a check. I know you're not taking care of her. You're just using her. But I love her. And I want to provide for her needs. So here. Take care of her. Keep her safe. I'm not going to stop pursuing her. And it goes on, and the text tells us that she doesn't even know. So you've got to imagine this guy closes the door and says, what a fool, cashes the check, provides for her, they do their thing, and never tells her where the money came from, never tells her where the goods came from. And so she's left not knowing that it was Hosea that was pursuing her. And it hit me this week. I've read this a bunch, but it really hit me. How many of us who follow Jesus can look back on our life and say, when that season where I wasn't following him, man, he was working the whole time. And he was behind the scenes. And I was given credit for a lot of the things going on in my life to some other things, but it was God the whole time. He put me in that situation, introduced me to that person, got me to go to that place where I heard that message. He kept me safe long enough to when I heard that message, I was ready to come home. And that's what Hosea's is doing. He's providing for her in hopes that over time, over time she will come home. Well, the text ends up telling us that this guy that she's living with gets tired of her, and so he sells her. He sells her as a slave, and so now she's going to be sold into sex trafficking. She's going to be paraded in front of people, and the highest bidder is going to win her and get her back. And this is where God calls Hosea to the second season of his ministry. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. The Cakes and raisins, just a bonus. You get the gist. (laughs) He says, look, I want you to go to her again. Don't stop pursuing her. Go after her again. Because it's just like me. When I go after my people, they continually run to other things. They're running to all these other things for satisfaction. And I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep coming after them. And I want you to model this for them. Even though that she cheated on you, she lived with another guy, and she, she pursued all these horrible things. And now she's been sold into sex trafficking. At this point in the story, you're probably thinking, man, she deserves it. She's getting what should come to her. She made these decisions. She put herself in this situation. But God says, no, my grace is more powerful than that. And you're going to model that for me, Hosea. I was at the North American Christian Convention, and a preacher named John Weiss, who honestly is just filled with a lot of godly wisdom, had this beautiful line that I've, man, I've just been thinking about it ever since. He said this, there is always more grace in God than there is sin in man. That's what's being modeled right here. There's more grace in God than there is sin in man. God's grace is incredible, and he's modeling it here for them. So, again, Hosea obeys. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, so I bought her. I went to the auction. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, and so will I also be to you. So he shows up. In those days, what would have happened is she would have been paraded up on a stage. She would have been naked, because anybody bidding on her would have wanted to know exactly what it was that they were paying for. And so they would have started calling out the bids. You got to picture this: one guy says 14 shekels, and then all of a sudden she's up there, full of shame. She's just sitting there naked, shame, humiliated, completely exposed, no hiding. 14 shekels, and then she hears a voice that she recognizes. It's Hosea. He says, 15 shekels. The guy says, 14 and 6 bushels of barley. He says, how about 15 and 9? And what he's saying is this, I'm not going to lose. I'll pay whatever it takes. In those days, a slave would have cost 30 shekels, and so the fact that he pays 15 and some goods means that he emptied the bank account. He completely exasperated himself to win her back. He gets her back. Think about what she's thinking in this moment. He wins her back, and He comes walking up and instead of scolding her, he covers her nakedness, puts the veil back on her and gives her her dignity as a woman in front of all these people and walks with her and she's got to be thinking, Man, how could you love me? I don't deserve this. You just paid all that money. Now I know I'm yours and you're going to take out your anger on me because now I'm your property. Instead of that, he takes her hand and he looks at her and he just says, I'm tired I'm tired and I love you and I've worked really hard to get here and I've spent everything on you I just want you to be faithful to me and I'm gonna be faithful to you I want to grow old with you I just want to have a family and if you're like me I'm sitting there thinking I don't know how this kind of love works this is incredible This goes beyond anything that I could possibly understand. This is blowing my mind as I'm reading it because I'm thinking, man, where is justice going to be served? Like, when is it that she's going to get the punishment that she deserves? When is God's justice and wrath going to come? And here's what's fascinating to me. In my Christian journey, I've talked to many people who have said they don't believe in God because how could a good God provide punishment on somebody? somebody? How could a good God bring justice and punish sin and bring pain and suffering? And we're always against God in that situation until we place ourselves in Hosea's shoes. And then all of a sudden we realize, oh, wow, yes, justice, yes, sin should be punished. And he would have been able to in those days. The biblical law afforded him the ability to divorce her without any cause and even have her killed for what she did. But he wasn't looking for a way out. He just wanted to love her. It's important biblical principle that I heard from a preacher who said, lead with love and land on truth. For so many of us, we would much rather lead with truth, lead with truth, lead with truth. But God leads with love. And look, here's the thing about God you need to know. He'll always stick the landing. He won't miss truth. It'll come. But he leads with love. He loves his people so desperately that no matter what we've done, where we've been, what trouble we've had, how much shame we carry. And if you're really honest, if you dig really deep, most of us still carry a lot of shame. And God says, here's the reason for showing grace and mercy in this situation. If you flip over to chapter 11, he gives us the reason why He calls Hosea to love Gomer so consistently and fully. And he says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 11, we read this earlier in the service, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again, destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. I have more capacity for love than you do. That's what he's saying. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And I read that this week, and the only thing that could come to mind immediately for me was Jesus' words as he's looking out over a sinful city that had rejected God in Matthew chapter 23, and here's the words of Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem. This is from a broken heart. Jerusalem. Mm the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you weren't willing. I just want to love you. I just want you to know how worthy you are. I just want you to know how much I care about you. I just want you to know how valuable you are that no matter what you've done, where you've been, I just want you to know that I love you, But you're not listening because you've pledged your allegiance to things that are clouding your judgment and your ability to see and they're going to leave you dissatisfied. The most frustrating part of studying Hosea is that the ending, we're not really told how Gomer responds. Like, man, that, I don't know about you, that drives me nuts. Like, cause I, like, I want to know. Like, what happened? How did she, but we're not really told. And here's what happened this week is I'm studying this, and I'm like, why didn't we understand? I want to know exactly what happened with them. They forced me to look at me and say, how am I responding? to this all-encompassing, never-ending, always-pursuing, sin-forgiving love that God has offered me? What's my response to it? I've had some time to reflect, and here's what I came to. In my years in ministry, I've come to realize I love God. I mean, I really love him. I, I love coming to church on Sunday and gathering with God's people. I love my quiet time when I open his word and I read it. I love singing worship songs obnoxiously in the car when nobody can hear me. I love God. I love everything about him. I love telling my kids about Jesus. I love talking to people that don't know him about him. I would go anywhere and I would do anything for God. My problem is not loving God. My problem, and maybe you can relate to me, my struggle consistently is letting God love me. Because so I just don't feel worthy. I've got these struggles that I continually battle. I've got anger and all kinds of things that continually tempt me and plague me. And I just feel like, man, God, if you, how could you love me when I battle this or I've done this? My past haunts me. Things I've said and done, people that I've hurt. Man, the enemy uses them to bring them in the front of my mind all the time. I just wonder, God, I love you, but I don't know how in the world you could ever love me. And then I hear a message from Hosea. And the message is not, get it together, Rob. Work harder. Clean up your act. The message is not, do more good, and when you get it right, I'll forgive you. See, the way way that J.D. Greer Um, summarizes this. I love it. He says this, God's love is not the power that liberates us from, is the power that liberates us from captivity. It's not the reward for having liberated ourselves. You don't, you don't just try harder and liberate yourself and then God will love you. Uh, Picture this. Remember, Hosea pursued Gomer when she was still a prostitute, didn't tell her to get her act together, go into some sort of a plan and live a year that was good and then I'll finally love you and care about you. And then when she cheated on him, he loved her again and didn't say, get your act together, do a whole bunch of good, and then if you're worthy, I will love you again. No, he just loved her because he couldn't help himself. He cared about her. He loved her, and he wanted her to know that even in the midst of your mistake, no matter what you've done, what you've said, where you've been, who you've hurt, right now, in this very moment, there's nothing you have to do except surrender. The Bible's very clear how we respond to this amazing loving grace that God has expressed to us. A few um, weeks ago, many of you know I had the privilege of baptizing my aunt my mom's sister, into Christ. Now, my mom's sister, my mom, all of them, and I had a really bad season in life. Uh, she, was, uh, she made a lot of poor decisions with drugs and, and poor uh, choices that had affected my life in a very negative way. So I was angry. When I became a Christian, I knew that I had to share the gospel with her, so I tried with this hellfire and brimstone, which is such a waste of energy, and I would just come at her, and it didn't work. Then God broke my heart for her. So they were visiting at Thanksgiving, and I laid out the gospel for them uh, at my Thanksgiving table and just presented it to them. And I thought, man, for sure she's going to do this, and she didn't. We're on vacation in Florida just a few weeks ago, and she stops me and says, hey, I I have not been able to stop thinking about Jesus and what you told me about him, but I'm not sure I can get baptized and become a Christian. I'm not sure I can do that. And I said, why? She goes, because I don't think I can live up to grace. I don't think I can get my act together enough to deserve this. And I said, oh, that's great. Me neither. Me neither. That's the point. So I baptized her in the ocean. And when we were coming out of the, the beach, we were walking back toward the beach. She said, man, I love grace. I thought, how cool is that? The Bible says that no matter where you're at, if you believe that Jesus is the solution to your perpetual sin problem, then you recognize, me, and my sin has separated me from God. I've been divided from him, and I, I can't be near him because of my sin, but he provided Jesus, and so I just need to repent of everything that I've done. And all repent means is I turn in a new direction. I confess, yes, Jesus is the one. And then the Bible's very clear. At that moment, you're baptized in the Christ. You go under the water, and you die a spiritual death. That's what the Bible describes it as. And you're raised up to a new life. And Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, In that moment, your sins are forgiven. And you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and you no longer have to fight sin and carry the weight of shame and difficulty on your own any longer because the Holy Spirit's now your helper. He lives in you. And in your darkest moments, in your deepest valleys, in the moments where you just don't think you can keep going, he brings to the front of your mind the words of Jesus so that you might come to understand how wide and deep and high is the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's you this morning. Why don't you let today be your day? We had a young lady named Kelly come forward after second service and she was baptized in the Christ. Today was her day. Everything changed for her. And if you're here today, you've not been baptized in the Christ. Today can be your day. We've got everything you need. We want to celebrate that. We're going to have a time of response. And if that's you, during these songs, I'll be right up here. You can come and make that decision today. But maybe you've been following Jesus for a while but you've been holding on to some sin and it's heavy and you just need someone to pray with you. It doesn't have to be me. I'm, I'll come sit right over here when I'm done here in a second. And If you want to come, I'll pray with you. But look, we've got a lot of people in this church that are really good at loving people and they don't have to have a title behind their name to come and pray with you. So they'll, they'll keep their eyes open and they'll come sit right next to you and pray with you while we're singing and worshiping. Let me close it all with this quote that summarizes all of this together. And then if today's your day as we respond, you can do so. This comes from Donald Gray Barnhouse. He says this, The pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder in the spiritual universe. When we see this love at work through the heart of Hosea, we may wonder what God, if God is really like that. But He is. Think about it. Many years after Hosea, He would give man the ability to form the iron in the ground that He had created into nails and to fashion the trees in the field that He created into a cross. Then He stretched out His hands upon that tree and allowed us to nail Him with those nails into that cross, and in doing so, he took our sins upon himself. Friends, this is our God, and there's no one like him. Let's pray.